welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl Me Up the Podcast. Happy Wednesday, Samantha. Hey, yeah. Maddie called me an angsty teen. Oh, this, yeah. So another plug to go watch on YouTube because Samantha's whole look today is serving angsty teen with a touch of carpal tunnel. Um <laughs> it's it's a look I I never thought I'd see. It's honestly okay, so my my like general my style I feel like people usually think it's like super girly or super preppy but there is actually like a very big like more like punk like emo-y style section in it mm. and I don't like honestly wear it that often these days but like if you saw like some and it's always mixed in because I love so like, so like look you put together or are you just being comfy I thought you're just being comfy oh no it's like a look like I I love like a little like punk thing i used to have like a lot of when studs were having moments which also they are kind of coming back which is the thing i had a lot of like kind of like punky emo stuff for sure which i know doesn't seem doesn't fit the bill but okay interesting we learned something new about about each other every day but we got her nice little grungy black t-shirt oversized black nails and of course her wrist brace (laughs) which if you didn't hear Samantha does have a touch of carpal tunnel and we talked about it yesterday on top stories. Of course, speaking of top stories, we might as well talk about what we talked about. And if you haven't listened yet, you should go listen because, oh God, now I have to remember what we talked about. So many things. So many things. First thing was that Congress is back and we talk about everything on the agenda and how busy they are. Did you see what I named it in the description? No. I said, like, Congress is back with their bad attitude. Ooh, it, it is giving that, exactly. The other thing we talk about is Fox News and their legal troubles at the moment, which we have a lot of thoughts about and mm. is a very interesting story that I'm sure we'll be continuing to keep people up- updated on because it should be a running story. And then, of course, we end with some heinous heinous stories and policies that are coming out of some conservative states that I think everyone should be aware of because we are really trying to push everyone to pay attention to their state government and what's going on at that level. So there's your top stories. Go listen to get all the details. But we also have one, one we have to talk about today because I was a little shooketh by this story. We'll get into it in a second. But the other I didn't even see about, this yet. This literally just dropped like punchable. Okay. Dropped at this as our afternoon newsletter. It's it's tea. It's mm. tea. Mm. Before we get into it, the other thing we talked about yesterday was our sticker situation oh. and our little giveaway that we're doing with our new stickers. Samantha, that's facts. Okay, here are the details. Let's see if I can keep it as concise as I did yesterday. Which already me saying that made it not concise. <laughs> uh, what can I say? I'm just I'm born. What's the the gift of gab? That's what I have. Mm. Yeah, it does make sense that we're on a podcast then. It is. 
you know, yeah. when the shoe fits, but nonetheless, the sticker situation. So we have some new stickers. They're really cute. Smiley faces. We've got pink. We've got green. We've got big. We've got small. Anyways, they're great. They're fun. And we want to give you guys some, but in order to get stickers sent your way, what you're going to have to do is take a screenshot or picture of you listening to the podcast, sharing the podcast with a link on it on your Instagram story and tagging us. And then we will send you some stickers. So the direction is very simple. Share the podcast, your story with a link and tag us. And we will get the sticker situation sorted out in our DMs. There it is, folks. Sliding into the DMs, making things happen. That's, um, how, we, that's how we roll here. And they are so cute. I have them everywhere. everywhere. I can't wait to get mine. I do need to actually put them in the mail. i'm always i feel like i'm always the last one to get the stickers like you guys will literally get your stickers before me yeah that's that's actually how that's probably gonna work but priorities go post on your story well getting into this little story for today before we get into our interview interview interesting story that dropped via punchable in a afternoon newsletter they usually send a morning one, and then they'll do breaking news throughout the day. But this one, they just sent out and they basically are saying that the White House blindsided House Democratic leadership about President Joe Biden's intention to sign the GOP author disapproval resolution overturning DC's new criminal code. That was news from a couple days, I believe. But now there's a little more to it because top House and Senate Democrats were caught completely off guard by a new New York Times story disclosing that the Biden administration is considering bringing back the Trump era policy of detaining migrant families as the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border worsens and Democrats are not happy about it. So Senator Ben Ray Lujan said he was frustrated that this didn't come up when he and other Hispanic senators met with DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas last month. This is a quote. It was a time to have honest conversations with one another. And this is another one of those surprises. If it's true, that was covered by the media. Fortunately for the media, we continue to find out decisions that are being made. We shouldn't be going backwards, Senator Alex Padilla said from California. It didn't make sense under Trump. It's not going to make sense here. And so now they're holding a virtual meeting with Congressional Hispanic Caucus members at 5 p.m. this evening to discuss the uproar over the Times report. House Democrats joined in criticizing the White House's reported stance and Rep. Lou Correa called the potential return to family detention immoral and unacceptable. Congressional Hispanic Caucus Chair Nanette Barragan, see, this is really testing my pronunciation Mm. skills today, said the administration, quote, should not return to the failed policies of the past. White House officials say a number of policy options are under review and no decision has been made yet. And these conversations are happening in anticipation of Title 42 authority, which is the pandemic era public health policy used to expel migrants, which is ending on May 11th. An administration official said there is nothing to notify anyone about at this time, nor has there been. Yet with Biden moving toward running for a second term, the administration is taking a harder line on immigration and crime and the situation at the border, which has been a political vulnerability for the president. The administration recently proposed a new rule that bars most migrants who travel through other countries from seeking asylum in the United States. And that rule is expected to take effect in May. And in early January, Biden implemented a new rule using Title 42 to bar Cuban, Haitian, and Nicaraguan migrants from Mexico into the United States. And the administration did increase ways migrants 
from those county counties can seek entry. I don't know if they meant countries, countries or counties. Countries. countries. Punchbowl. Punchbowl has a typo. Oh, wow. <laughs> Got him. Got him. So with these new procedures in place, migrant encounters at the border were down sharply in January. And Senator Bob Menendez, who has been a local critic of Biden's recent border-related announcement, said he was perplexed by the prospect of bringing back the detention policy. He said, I don't know that it's policy for sure. I think it may have been internally floated for discussion, but this administration ended that form of detention. I can't understand for the life of me why they would bring it back. So very interesting, like the, the times girls are fighting. Dro- dropping this, yeah, dropping this tea, but it's not confirmed, but it's confirmed enough to where major Democratic leaders are speaking out and, you know, criticizing it. So I'm just really curious what's going to happen on this. I mean, hopefully with the criticism that Biden is getting, they will now move forward avoiding this policy, but... I just, it's really confusing. Like, where did the Times get the audacity to drop something like this? Well, I mean, look, the Times has honestly been on the wrong side of things a lot recently from their article, you know, focused on what's her face, JK Rowling. Yeah. And so many more. I mean, I, I can't say I'm like looking at the Times with like great what is the word that I'm looking for? Like it's like that was more of like what, a stance that they took. Whereas this is like kind of questioning their like journalistic integrity of like coming out and saying yeah. that Biden is taking a policy stance that he that has not been confirmed. So well, I think yeah, totally, I agree with that. And I think there's I'm now of course blanking on them, but there have been a handful of other situations like that in the last few months, and it's made me go, what the hell? Like honestly, yeah. like it's not. It's, and I will say this too, and this is not like a boycott New York Times scenario, like make your own choices about what, what you read and where you go. But like, I, I've i gone in other directions. There's other news sources that I have more faith in and I have taken my, my eyes and my wallet elsewhere. So that's my thoughts on that. That said, in terms of this dynamic between the representatives and Biden, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see that play out in general, like whether there's some meat behind this or not, or legs behind this, whatever meat, legs. Work. I can't. But like, I just think that if Biden is going to say, hey, I'm running for another term, he can't lose his key crew. Right. So a blindside's a weird strategy. That doesn't especially really because like- it's coming off of a fresh one as well with the whole DC crime totally. debacle. So just just weird. Like I'm like weird. I, I don't even know is it like the comms end of things there that's not working out? Is it yeah. you know like what's what's the like sort of kink in the chain? Exactly. You know? Like right. there's something odd going on with the communication style and something's not working. And then on top of Which it is with the this absolute last thing they need. They need right. to up their right. comms game. Get it perfect hone it in and yet there is a situation in which a really really aggressive policy stance is potentially being put on this administration when it's not confirmed like how can they not have this buttoned up seems odd i also think that with this 
I, I understand the administration being like, hey, like we need to figure something out with immigration. One, because it does need a solution. There need, mm-hmm. does need to be movement on this. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see it within this administration, even the next one. I think this is going to be a continual crisis that we deal with, unfortunately, just the pace of politics for the next God knows how many decades. Like, I really don't like the whole system needs an overhaul and no one seems to be willing to step up and be like, hey, we're going to do this. So I think we're going to be continually dealing with this. Sorry to like burst everyone's bubble of this new representative will help. Like I, God bless, love you and your positivity, but I don't see it. But I do think that like they're the comms coming in and trying to take a stance on something like this. Like I understand how like that might help from their end bolster, you know, views of voters. But I also, here's the thing is like, I, I'm not saying don't make moves on immigration again, like I just said. Something needs to be done on it. Obviously, I'm not in a border state. I just realized that New York is a border state. (laughs) 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 Geography is so hard. But like southern border, let me just clarify that. Anyways, but I think that the Republicans are going to beat him to death on immigration no matter what he does. And they're going to message around it. He could literally become like the most anti-immigrant president we've ever seen. I don't think so, but like just say, and they would still beat him at this game on this issue. Yeah. Like their messaging has been also going on since the Bush administration and before that right. on this issue. I don't think, even though clearly it's like Trump's wall didn't work, like Bush's policies didn't work, like all these things that happened under Republican presidents like didn't work, but regardless, their messaging always seems to be more aggressive and stronger. And it's the same with crime. Right. It's like Democrats can put together a really, really comprehensive and potentially like even aggressive crime bill, but it'll still be the issue that Republicans use to attack the left and fearmonger people into not voting for Democrats. Both these issues, crime and immigration, I think have both been kind of like pawns in the communications game yeah and not something where like yeah like you said like the republicans even have a solution when they do get into office that they implement and that works like it nobody has the solutions yet they're using this constantly to get voters scared and to attack the other side and yet we still have these two issues that linger for decades that don't get solved so Yeah, I don't know. I think whenever Biden decides on the actual policy that they put in place, it just that's the thing is that the calm strategy around announcing that policy plan also needs to be really, really honed in and like perfect, because if you are going to be more aggressive about it, then you need to have a good calm strategy in place in order to not piss off all the Democrats while also saying to you know more moderate voters that hey we're doing something and we're going to solve this and like have that quote-unquote aggressive stance on it so to have this be so messy right now is definitely probably very problematic i'm sure people are quaking over there in the white house and whatever is going on at the new york times as far as however this came out i'm just i want answers I want all the drama. I feel like there's there's got to be so much tea surrounding this whole story of like how this all went down. A thousand percent. I also know that there's been a lot of drama at the Hispanic caucus recently and turnover there. So like this is just a mess. Mm-hmm. 
a mess. Truly. So there's a little story. Which is is messier, the Bravo drama going on right now or this, you know, it's like, pick your, pick your drama, pick your tea. I know. I didn't watch Vanderpump Rules and I'm not going to go back to like 2011 when it started. Okay. You know, so I, so here's the thing. I didn't either with the exception of like everyone swamp that was like on in the background and then with summer house and then coming in there, I just have like a good idea of just generally who people are a little bit and like reputations, but like not a watcher of the show, like just not okay. Never caught on to it. Yeah. But I did just catch up and watch this season. There was like four episodes out so far. Super easy to watch, like background okay. reality, like trash Good TV. Know, actually, a thousand percent. I was like, wow, I was happily surprised because I thought I was gonna be like, ugh, like I'm just watching this because I want to like know the drama happening right now and get it. And it was an easy, fun, like, okay, let me do my nails. That is what yeah. I love about Summer House is first, there's not like so many seasons that you can't just like binge it quick. Yeah. The other thing that I've tried to watch Vanderpump Rules before, and when you do try to start from like season one, it's so it's dated. just like heinous because like the outfits are bad it's like 2012 the, the, just all the aesthetics i'm like not i don't like watching shows from back then i don't oh, know no. why. i don't i never start like even i watched like the last season of southern charm recently and i just started right. at the last season i was like i'm good Same. and like luckily i will say like look some of the bravo shows like yes some of the people have been on forever so there's background you're missing but you still kind of figure out the catch-up like the editors are yeah. Slash producers are good enough at like doing a little they show flashbacks that you, sometimes yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. well there is your pop culture slash white house <laughs> breakdown <laughs> update for for the day but we will definitely get into our interview now if samantha would you like to introduce our guest i would we are talking about the farm bill today as well as the future of farming and sustainability in the u.s if you don't know the farm bill is up for discussion this year so there is lots to chit chat about this there are this also was like an issue or not an issue but like policy area that honestly completely farmed both of us one of mm-hmm. those where it's like you know it's important you know it's a big thing within american politics but just not one that's been in in our purview yet now it is we're excited to know about it we think it is incredibly important for everyone to know about just, you know, casual knowing like how your food is grown in the U.S., like the future of it, providing for, you know, farmers, making sure that they are set up yeah. for success and diversifying the field of farmers. No, it's very important. Farmers being able to and... access loans and resources and subsidies and all of those things and yep. making sure that there's equal access to those things. So yep. I'm getting ahead of myself. I should introduce our guest who speaks way better on this issue than, than I can. So anyways... Today, we are chatting with Vanessa Garcia-Polanco. She's the Policy Campaigns Co-Director at the National Young Farmers Coalition. So without further ado, here's Vanessa. Hi, guys. We wanted to pop in with a little recommendation that we think you will love. It's a podcast we listen to each week, and it's called Female Founder World. This show is iconic and shares the stories of entrepreneurial baddies and besties that are making their way in the e-com space and beyond. Each week, an interview drops featuring big names and loads of entrepreneurial advice that most business shows fail to share. The show moves beyond the fluff and gives you the 4 on one and the behind the scenes that we all need to know to grow, whether you're an entrepreneur or working in politics. All these insights apply. Find Female Founder World on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you've listened to pods. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. 
Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of pros custom hair care and skin care is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing pre-mixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girlandgov. 
All right. Well, welcome, 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 Vanessa. We are so excited to have you on the show. This is going to be such a great deep dive on what you guys do and also the farm bill, which has been literally the talk of the town since the start of the new year. So we're going to get into all of it, but thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to get into this all with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Maddie and Sam. I look forward to talking to you all about the farm bill and the work that I do. Of course. Well, let's get started with the work that you guys do at the Young Farmers Coalition. Can you walk us through what the coalition does, how it kind of got its start too, and what's on the agenda as well for 2023 and beyond? Yeah, definitely. So in the ecosystem of farming organizations, we are really young. We're only 12 years old or 13 now, we're 2013. And we got started because groups of young farmers across the country came together and realized that they wanted to be represented and have more advocacy and the opportunities that we have federally to shape our food and agricultural and ag- communities. And that's how you know, Young Farmers Coalition got started. And that's why we are a coalition, because we represent many chapters and people across the country. And our main mission is to be an intersectional grassroots network that focuses on farmers and growers working to shift power and change policy to transform agriculture in a way that is centered around equality outcomes in food and farming systems. And we have 51 chapters now. We are in 32 states. And we definitely see ourselves as a partner for social justice movements because we champion policies that focus on land, well-being, people, the climate crisis, and advocating for farming to be recognized as public service. I love that. That's awesome. And definitely a bunch of topics that we haven't fully dived into before. So we're really excited too with you today. But before we get into all of that, can you also give us kind of your journey too of how you got involved with the coalition and how you got here? Yeah, definitely. So I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic in a really agrarian community in the Dominican Republic. I usually like to call it the Midwest of the Dominican Republic, the same way the Midwest produces all the corn and soy. I would produce all the tuberks. That is what we eat in the Dominican Republic in my region. And we produce 50% of all the eggs in the country, fun fact. But then I moved to the United States and I was trying to find my way in American society. I know I was really interested in politics and the environment. I came from all this agricultural background. My dad's still a farmer in the Dominican Republic. And then I went to the University of Rhode Island to pursue agricultural economics and environmental economics. And we have a chapter or National Young Farmers Coalition in Rhode Island. So most of my summer, I would spend just hopping around beautiful farms and talking to people about farming issues. And that's how I got started with the coalition. And then I moved away to Michigan to pursue my master's at Michigan State. And we didn't have a chapter there, but I still stayed involved. So when a job opened up to join the DC team, I was like, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be advocating for big transformational change in a way that's systematic and not just providing technical assistance to people or like one time, one thing. And I joined the team right at the beginning of the pandemic. So you can imagine it was like, hit the ramp running. Oh my God, um, yeah. On, a, on advocacy all the time. Literally, I was, I was literally finishing my thesis and like, taking 10 meetings with senators a week being like we need funding for young farmers during the pandemic so it was definitely being a beautiful journey at young farmers well we're so excited that the journey led you here because we need to talk about some of that assistance and how that comes to be what is the farm bill sort of start off our i have a stupid question but section They're not stupid questions (laughs) so the farm bill is i think something really beautiful and something really american in other countries, you get an agrarian reform that is done every 30 or 40, 50 years. 
in the United States, we have the opportunity to revisit how we support farmers and agrarian communities every five to six years. And this got started since the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s. So every year, every five, six years after that, we all come together, all the stakeholders of agriculture, and we say, this is what we need for American agriculture to thrive in order to feed our communities, in order to, and also to fight climate change now. But before we will use much like protect soil health, because that's a lot of the way the Farm Bill got started, because we have a great dust bowl. So mm-hmm. that's actually one of the reasons that we have a Farm Bill today, because we farm so bad for a good 30, 50 years that the government was like, oh my God, we need an intervention. <laughs> That is a policy proposal, so people don't farmers don't go poor, people don't go hungry, and our soils don't degrade. And that's how the farm bill was born. Wow. Wait, I did not realize that at all, that this was all coming out of the dust bowl. That is I mean, it does make a ton of sense. I'm mm-hmm. glad it, you know, a lot of times I feel like with policy we see band-aid solutions, but this feels like one that was more than a band-aid. <laughs> No, you know? I, I didn't. We we don't think about the farm bill as like the old New Deal, the old New Green Deal, but it is, it's definitely a child of that generation. But it's never market that way. Yeah. Well, we have a question too about kind of how this bill functions, especially around spending. So we had a question of like difference between mandatory spending in the bill and discretionary. Can you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, definitely. So there are different ways about it. So usually there's mandatory spending that I mean, we agree since the beginning that this program is foundational and fundamental. So every year we agree that we're going to allocate, let's say, $50 billion to this program in perpetuity until we amendment. So usually what happens every year the, while the appropriation cycle, when we have to allocate money to farm bill programs, some farm bill programs really have that number written down because we agree that are important, they're non-negotiable. And for example, National Young Farmers Coalition in the last 2018 Farm Bill, we fought really hard for the beginning farmer rancher program and the 2501 socially disadvantaged and farmer program to be made into mandatory spending. So right now, every year, there's 10 million in every appropriation cycle during every fiscal year that is allocated to that program. So we don't have to fight for it. But there are other programs like conservation technical assistance that focuses on natural resources and soil health that we have to fight for every year. Uh, usually we we request anything between 1.5 and 2 billion to be fought for, and we may get 900 million. So again, it's that process of appropriating federal spending that Congress goes through every year to the appropriation cycle. So that's the difference between discretionary and mandatory. Got it. Okay. That is super helpful to know. And thinking about this bill in the 2023 version and what's going to get, you know, sort of hashed out, what's included in this round? And also what are some of those, you know, points that maybe, I don't want to say controversial, but just are going to be fought over? Yeah, definitely. So I think every farm bill is an opportunity. We have to remember that. It doesn't matter who is in control or what has happened in the past. Every farm bill is an opportunity. In 2018, we got many good things that we didn't thought we would get, like the Office of Urban Agriculture for the first time ever. So in this farm bill right now, we are in the drawing phase. We we know what things are going to be there because there's 12 titles in the farm bill. But at the same time, there could be many new things that we don't even know that will come up until the last day that the Senate and the House has given themselves to be introduced as marker bills. This is a reminder, the farm bill drops we don't know when it's going to drop. I cannot schedule a vacation for the next year because we don't know when it's going to drop. 
Fair. But we do know that we have until mid-March to have a marker bill introduced that could be attached to the farm bill. So that's a lot of the stage that we are right now, getting a marker bill, getting marker bills introduced. Some of them have been introduced a lot in the past few weeks. Then they're going to go to committee to mark up. And then in that process, they will decide to make it into the final farm bill that we will have to review because it's a thousand pages. So we get like literally five days to seven days and we all lock ourselves in a room and read it. Oh my God. How much coffee goes into this room with you guys? I don't question. know. This is my first farm bill in DC. I had on farm bills no, in DC. So I only had to read like one page or two. So I will let you know. <laughs> no, we need like a coffee counter. We need to like help like sponsor some coffee for you for you guys or something. It is. I, re- I really have a Starbucks reserve order ready to go. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's a must. Well, can you also explain first like what the USDA's role is in all of this? And also for those who don't know, like, can you kind of explain too just what the USDA even is? Yeah, so the USDA is the Department of Agriculture. And, and basically the Farm Bill approves how they're going to operate, how much funding they're going to have to do the activities that Congress has designated to do. The main role of USDA is to be a service provider to farmers and to support American agriculture. And that means from helping farmers and ranchers to helping food businesses to helping aggregators and processors so we can have food in our supermarkets that it may look not just fresh from the farm. So USDA does a lot of things and also research. We cannot forget that a huge arm of USDA is doing research so we can have a better food system and understand better how or we can build more resilience in the food supply chain. So the Farm Bill authorizes a USDA budget, basically. This is what we are giving you permission to spend. And then through the appropriation cycle, that budget is renegotiated every year. The plans are discretionary. But yeah, it's a huge it's a huge bill. And it's a huge department that impacts a lot of things in America. I cannot give you a fun fact right now. I cannot think of any of them. But, like, but I feel like USDA does so many things that we do not know about, like promotion of American agricultural goods to other countries. Or, I don't know, research on really weird things that you may never think about. <laughs> or give funding to universities to do research in agriculture. Like, I went to two land grants. For me, research and that money is really important because that's how we make sure that we are keeping up with the innovation and the science that is needed to feed a growing population. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting because I think people would expect that to be coming from, like, the Department of Education but really, it's it's more complicated than people realize. And I feel like so much, you know, so many of those things would be like, oh, that's totally classically categorized here. It's not so much, which adds no, a little confusion, a little smoke no, and mirrors, actually, if you will. The first exercise I give my team, they, they just finish. It's like I give them a list of like 300 things that we care about young farmers. And I ask them now organize it by title of the farm bill and then organize it by the department at USDA. Got it. Okay, that is a puzzle, which... Honestly, it does sound kind of fun right now. So I don't know. I might have to do this assignment too. So feel free to hit me up. But nonetheless, we want to talk about SNAP a little bit because we know this also gets included here. First of all, for those that don't know, what is SNAP? And secondly, why is SNAP seemingly controversial to us? For background, it seems like a very smart policy decision. So I'll just give you that POV. Definitely. So SNAP stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And it's the largest and most important anti-hunger program based on income. And the program serves more than 40 million people, many with families and children. And I told nutrition programs do not directly benefit our farms as FSA loans or agricultural education programs 
do we know we, we do know that they support communities uh, especially because farmers snap money can be used in farmers markets that's where the most of farmers national young farmers coalition farmers are selling they prefer direct market sales like farmers markets and obviously it's controversial because like many or social and economic issues in this country it often gets misrepresented as coming down to personal responsibility when mm -hmm. we know that hunger and poverty are no moral failure they are systematic failures of society and government okay. and obviously and that's just really far away from the truth that to say that it's a it's a personal responsibility we all have our responsibility to create a community in a world where no one is going hungry. Mm -hmm. The real question is, why is one of the wealthiest countries are millions of children and families are foodies? Uh, and obviously, there's this, uh, we all get an annual report on how many people are going hungry in the United States. And obviously, we claim to be the country that produces the most food, but not, not all that food is accessible to everyone. Yeah, that was a great explanation for sure. And to round out our I have a stupid question segment, can you answer what is equitable land access? Yeah, definitely. So my farmers are really focused on feeding their communities. That's why we believe programs like SNAP are essential because we need to get more farmers into the land. And land access is a really complex issue that's multidimensional and cannot be solved with a single policy change or law. Land is power and accessing and owner having an equal for most of our country's history. So when we talk about land, we acknowledge this connection to power and policy. And as young farmers, we think that the rural racial equity and food sovereignty and economic prosperity, public health and climate resilience is having land access. So the way we keep our communities fed is through having land access for the next generation and the current generation that is farming right now. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, we got to move back into this topic at large because yeah. this is a busy, busy year for this entire topic. And we want to just look at this landscape, literally and figuratively, of agriculture and farming in the U.S. What is sort of the prognosis of that today? You know, what does farming and agriculture look like across the U.S. right now? Yeah, so we actually just finished the census. I finished like two weeks ago. So in a year, we'll have even more fresh data. But we do know that 90% of farmers in this country are white and their average age is 60 degrees. And we do know that over the course of 100 years, when especially when we started passing the farm bill, is when it led to a lot of Black-owned farmland drop. So we know that we lost 90% of all Black farmers in the last 100 years, almost at the same Gosh. time the farm bill got passed. And there's a correlation there that we can we can do again another episode to that. Mm -hmm. Um and basically what happens is that not only farmers of color are being shut down, but access to land and federal resources that impact climate change are making it really difficult for communities and families to stay in agriculture. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to, to like land access, right? And we wanted to kind of ask what some of the barriers that farmers do face in accessing and securing land. Like, what does that look like? Definitely it's land values had dramatically increased over the last few years and buying land in rural areas has become even more competitive. And farmers are competing with large development companies, pension mm -hmm. funds, millionaires and foreign companies who have limited access to capital to buy land and manage the cost of production. When we did our 2020 survey, Building a Future with Farmers, 59% of farmers say that they, that they named finding affordable land to be very extremely challenging. And 41% said that finding access to capital to grow their business was very extremely challenging. 
Yeah. And many farmers rely on approval of industry gatekeepers like USDA and Farm Credit, who have the power to deny farmers credit and access when purchasing equipment, supply, animals, land, and other imp- mm-hmm. Okay, so thinking about like those challenges and then someone that decides that they want to start a farm, like what is that process like? What steps sort of go into it? Even say you, know, you actually get to, you know, find land and you're going to be able to hopefully close on that. You know, what happens after that? What's that process? The first and foremost, you need to have farming experience. Usually to apply for any FSA loan, you need to have shown that you have three minimum years of experience farming. So like for they even consider you worth your loan, it's not like, I'm Vanessa, I'm going to apply for a loan. Let me let me wing it and see what happens if I can farm. Now you have to prove. Yeah. You have farming experience. And usually the way you lie is through like a farming apprenticeship course or showing documentation that you're working a farm or you had a farm mentor or many other different arrangements. You have to go to different lenders uh, and ask them, I mean, you, can you approve this mortgage basically to buy farmland? Or, and then you can go to farm credit. And if it, all of them deny because they don't find you credit worthy, you go to the Department of Agriculture. And also there, you can also get an eye because you do not have enough experience, enough collateral, or many other things. Usually what we're seeing a lot is that a lot of farmers are not going through these channels. They mm-hmm. feel completely from the federal programs that were created in our last generation to support farmers because we, there has been a lot of discrimination that has happened in all those spaces to serve especially farmers of color. So most of my farmers... 93% report never using a USDA program. And that's concerning when that department, they have a duty to serve farmers in this country. And this entire new generation doesn't even want to go into their offices because they feel they're going to be discriminated. They're not going to be understood. They're going to be laughed at, which we has happened. And they're just going to be completely turned turn away. Like why yeah. they want to waste their time when they would rather maybe do a collaborative model or do a fundraiser, or do a start really small and then go big so they can grow their business with community. Yeah. Is it, I'm curious too, like how entrepreneurial, I guess it even is. Like, I just feel like when I think of like the farming industry, it seems to be maybe like a more generational industry where like, you know, the land and the farms are passed down. Is that something that you see a lot? Like, I feel like- Most of our farmers, most of our farmers are first generation. Yeah. So okay. they are not having the institutional well and generational well that mm-hmm. most that usually comes with farming. Right. So a lot of farmers are honestly raising to buy land or like yeah. saving pennies and a professional doesn't pay a lot. And it's also when you say entrepreneurial or farmers don't see themselves as business owners. Mm-hmm. They see themselves as land stewards. And I think that's a really important mindset. Yeah, they manage businesses because they had to put food on their tables and aside from our table. But they see themselves as land stewards, not as business owners most of the time. Yeah, that is interesting. interesting. And I, I think it's a, a next question to that too is like, what is the general like culture around farming maybe 10 years ago? And now what is it? And what are you sort of seeing with that? I think right now, the way we see farming is definitely, it's more consciousness as the as a social justice issue. I think we are less afraid to call out all the disparities that are happening in agriculture and they had happened. So I think I see a lot of the farming community now more as a social justice movement that is trying to use agriculture to build a better society for eaters, consumers, farmers, and everyone in the middle. 
Yeah. And what are some of the ways that farming intersects with social justice? Now we've talked a lot about that, but are there some more things that we haven't touched on where just paints the picture of how this is definitely a social justice issue? I think it's the prioritization of racial equity, recognizing that for many years, farmers of color, especially black farmers, have not been served by these institutions. So we are focusing on advancing racial equity. And that may look with diversity, equity, inclusion, and other programmatic changes that focuses on black farmers and socially disadvantaged farmers. That's the term that we use at USDA. Unfortunately, it's not the most sexy term. That's the Mm -hmm. term that we were given 30 years ago. So that's the one we have to use. And I think that's the reason that we see now some of, we see a lot of intersectionality in this movement. It's people coming from the environmental movement, from racial equity, from economic Mm -hmm. justice, and from many other walks away that are recognizing the importance of farming as a tool to build a a better society. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thinking about also the workers involved in farming, you know, first off, owners. Second off, also two, you know, people that are actually working on farms. How do we protect those people? How do we uplift those people? How do we make sure that the conditions are okay for them? And also two, how do people get involved with the movement on that end as well? Definitely. When we're thinking especially about workers, the best solution is immigration reform. We know that at the moment, especially undocumented workers, again, some legal, their, their, their protections increases because they have more whistleblower protections. They have a safety net. They can apply for a safety net. And they just have just more support. And at the same time, that's how we build and support those farm workers becoming farm owners and operators later on. I always say we don't have research on this, but in the 80s, when we passed immigration amnesty, we did see a huge increase of people transition to other professions that were formerly undocumented. And we do not have research to see if there was actually a, a spike in farm ownership because of amnesty. And someone is listening to this, please do that research and get back to me. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, guys, if you have an assignment, we need it. So thank you. Wait, obsessed. Well, we also have a question about land policy and what that really means for young farmers specifically. Can you kind of start to dive into what kind of the policy work you guys do on that front? Yeah, definitely. So we see a future where land access is no longer a barrier that prevents young people from building a vibrant and resilient agricultural system or renters towards community well-being and feeding our communities. And that's the reason we have our 1 million acres campaign right now for the Farm Bill. We started this campaign almost two years ago. Even people weren't even thinking about the Farm Bill because we wanted to be really communicative and being really focused that farmers are land stewards, are leading this movement to address the lack of federal support that is needed to address and assess the critical need for land. The land that we need to stay healthy for well-being, for our environment, economy, and historically marginalized communities. And this campaign calls into Congress to make a historic investment in equitable land access for the next generation of farmers and growers in this farm bill. So we can transition 1 million acres of farmland into BIPOC. And what we know is that that farmland needs to transition. And it's being transitioned right now, but it's being transitioned to all those other players that I told you about. It's been transitioned to billionaires, pension funds, hedge funds managers, and multinational companies. Mm -hmm. Wow. And some of the partners that you guys work with in this, who are they? What does that coalition work look like? And what also, too, has been sort of like the most exciting part about working with other partners 
for this campaign? Yeah, definitely. So definitely members of Congress are our biggest partners. We love talking to them about some of the issues online access, but we have really untraditional partners that people don't, are always surprised. Like it's our biggest sponsor of the land campaign. And also every time you order she plotted, there's an option to donate to us. So please order she plotted. Thank you. Oh, say less. Literally say less. This is literally (laughs) the best day of my life now knowing this. I am addicted to Chipotle and this just, wow. Okay. Thank you. I'm, Only on the I'm Super Bowl day, we, we get like a lot of money. So thank you to everyone that ordered to, uh, <laughs> order to brought that were in Super Bowl. I got Chipotle on Saturday night. So, so it's, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, it. and we also have many other grassroots organizations and partners from collabor- collaboratives of farmers in the Midwest or in the South who are focusing on land access. We're just trying to create a campaign where we advocate for policy change that will facilitate equitable land access. And we... We we still we still don't know we we still have many more partners to find and I think it's a beautiful thing to have community organizations entities farmers who are in the center of the story all interested in making this happen. Yeah, totally. Well, to kind of touch a little bit too on the climate side of things, can you kind of explain as well like how we make farming a more sustainable practice and how that's a big part of your guys' work as well? Yeah, definitely. And by, we do that by having a more holistic approach to farming is required. We include combating climate change, improving access to land and capital, and shifting our relationship with the land, not as a commodity, but as an essential resource that we need to protect and cultivate. We can do this through farmer-led policy reform, climate advocacy and education, and collaborative and transformative partnership with peer organizations and allies. Got it. Okay. And here's a tool that I saw on your website, but I want to know more. And it's called the Finding Farmland Calculator. Can yes. you tell us what this is, how it works, how you know people that are interested in using it can tap into it? Our Finding Farmland Calculator is a unique mortgage calculator designed to teach farmers about their financing options and credit worthiness when buying farmland. This tool allows you to purchase scenarios comparing total costs, monthly payments, and it scores for a number of financial ratios. While tools alone cannot make land access a possibility for everyone, it's entirely limited the risk of leasing or buying land that you know you're going to like get yourself in a hole, basically. This calculator helps to find the steps so you can take a more proactive approach if you buying the right farmland in the right location. Uh, for example, from Rhode Island, we had one of the most expensive farmlands in the country because we are so tiny and we have a lot of cost lines. And we have a lot of second home ownership. So what one of my friends did, uh, she wanted to buy farmland in Rhode Island because she was leasing her farmland land. And she tried several properties with a calculator. And none of them were feasible for her to buy in Rhode Island. But she found another properties and other properties in Vermont. And for her, it was more feasible based on her operation size or goals, savings, credit access to start a farm in Vermont. So she moved her entire 50 her cow to Vermont because that's where she could buy farmland. And obviously that was really painful for me because now she's in Vermont, mm-hmm. you know, in Rhode Island. But at the same time, it helps asset, it helps farmers where they can farm better in a way that is gonna still allow them to fulfill their farming dreams in a way that is not completely precarious to their financial situations. Totally. Yeah. Well, you guys are both still in New England. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know. <laughs> no, that's an incredible tool. I'm obsessed. Well, are there any grants or programs farmers know about now that you guys provide or anything else that you want to highlight? In every county, wherever you live, there is an office that is supposed to help you. Walk into the office 
and the man they talked to you Shit. they had to talk to you by law and they had to give you a receipt that they talked to you fun fact so okay. so my biggest advice you don't know i don't know your operation i don't know what you're farming i don't know your farming goals but usda is a resource for you and if they're doing their job correctly you can be able you should be able to walk in any county in united states and talk to someone that can help you apply for a federal loan or technical assistance that will improve your farming opportunities. And if they say no to you, you call me and I deal with them on your behalf. Yay. Yes. yes. And we also have technical assistance providers. So if you ever have a really bad experience going into USDA, we will go in the, on the phone with you and walk you through the process or tell you the things that they were supposed to tell you. Because mm-hmm. if you are a farmer in America, especially a young farmer, a brown farmer, a black farmer, you are entitled to the services. So right. don't let them turn you over. Yes. Love that. Amen. Love, love, that. love. Well, how else can people support the young farmers and the campaigns that you guys have going on? Is there <laughs> places people can find you guys? Like plug everything. You can support young farmers by going to our website and sharing the work that we do. You can follow us on Instagram. You can partner with us in the 1 million acres for the future campaign and spread the word about what we're calling for in the farm bill. You can also join us. It's only cost $1 to become a young farmer supporter and a member. And that comes with a lot of great discounts. So maybe you're thinking of starting a homestead. Joining young farmers will give you a lot of discounts for seeds and farm gear. And last year we wrapped for a tractor. <laughs> so everything, okay, nice. is, everything is possible. But we really want you to stay engaged about some of the issues that are affecting young people in agriculture. If you are like a young person like me who wants, who obviously is involved in this movement, we really want to invite you to sign up and you can be activated this year. And you can do that by signing up for P- or P2As and that's P2A slash dot com slash land. Awesome. Let me sure I got that right. No, slash land, just land. Perfect. <laughs> well, there we'll put is. all of the links in the episode description. Yes. So everyone can do also like the click and click and go situation as well. But thank you so much for walking us through these questions and We are excited to see where all of your work goes. And of course, getting this new level of farm bill across the finish line, we will be sending coffees. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.